Hi, welcome to Roses All Trash. I'm Catherine. I'm Ryan. Our theme for this week is Pain Isn't Pretty. Our first reading is by Susan Sontag, Illness as Metaphor. So this is a short book that is a roundup of stereotypes on illness, but we're specifically reading chapter four, which focuses on literary writings on tuberculosis, aka consumption, and how it was conflated with delicacy, fragility, and beauty. The romanticization of tuberculosis spurs the idea of romantic agony, which is visible, according to Sontag, in 20th century fashion's cult of thinness. And we can definitely discuss whether it's still visible now. Um, but Sontag argues that romanticizing TB wasn't just innocent literary description, but that people really actually romanticized the young and dying and it informed the quote unquote bohemian lifestyle throughout the 1800s and the 1900s, even through every major movement in art that had happened that, like throughout those countries. To nihilists, suffering was interesting, inevitably, in contrast to contentment, which was not as interesting. Quote, sadness made one interesting. It was a mark of refinement, of sensibility, to be sad. That is, to be powerless. Our second reading is Eva Illu's Triumphant Suffering. And it's a discussion of talk therapy. And while she doesn't necessarily condemn talk therapy as a process, she critically analyzes why we accept it and this sort of conflicting role that it holds and the conflicting identity that it creates where the people who participate in talk therapy allows them to play both the role of the victim and the person who is responsible for their actions and for their lives. It's this sort of individualistic take on healing and with this sort of narrative of like control and like fixing yourself and healing oneself while at the same time emphasizing help, helplessness to one's past and the things that has happened to oneself. And our last reading is by Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. We're reading chapter 14. In this chapter, van der Kolk addresses the fundamental question about Freud's legacy in psychoanalytic talk therapy. What good is it really to talk about your trauma? So as he does throughout the book, he describes a few of his clients, um, and the main one in this chapter is one who had maintained severe unawareness about her childhood sexual abuse. It's unclear as to whether it was really memory repression or whether she was just simply refusing to put the pieces of the puzzle together, like her experiences with the objective knowledge that it was sexual abuse. But her experience in group therapy helped to immerse her in other people who are processing their own trauma through language. A big theme throughout this book is that trauma survivors will often tell one story while their body tells another story. The body keeps the score. So that's whether it's Vietnam veterans telling really sad, broken stories while their body is radiating adrenaline or even pride, or whether childhood abuse survivors will describe very normal childhoods while their body is radiating stress and anxiety. Um, one important thing to note is that van der Kolk is a big figure in talk therapy. And therefore, he reminds us that art and dance therapy research has consistently shown that yes, coming back into touch with your body is part of therapy work, but we really need language to heal. Quote, our sense of self depends on being able to organize our memories into a coherent whole. This requires well-functioning connections between the conscious brain and the self-system of the body, connections that are often damaged by trauma, end quote. So we have a lot to talk about. I'm really excited to talk about the Sontag piece, the romanticization of thinness, but I also feel like if we get into that, I'll spend the next 50 minutes on a tangent. So I think <laughs> we should start with talking about talk therapy. 
Um, well, we can talk about the intersection of the two because Eluz and Vanderkolk are very aware of like what happens in talk therapy. Eluz has a more critical analysis of it. Vanderkolk is talking about its benefits. We're both distanced from it and also forced to sit with it. And Eluz thinks of that as, what was the quote? The therapeutic narrative taps into the subject simultaneously as a patient and as a consumer. Someone in need of management and care and as someone who can, if helped, be in control of his or her actions. In that respect, it merges two contradictory constructions of self at work in contemporary culture. The self as a potential or actual victim of social circumstances and the self as the sole author and actor of one's life. I thought that was really interesting because one of the thoughts that really plagues anyone with mental illness, right, is, am I faking it? Um, And that can stop a lot of people from seeking treatment. And I wonder how it folds in on itself, like in context of where we do romanticize illness, we do romanticize frailty, I think mental illness is like a part of this romanticization, but only like certain aspects of mental illness. People romanticize things like depression as anxious or anxiety as like, they're like a little bit nervous or like they're sad sometimes, but like obviously the culture at large does not romanticize aspects of depression. Like they're unable to brush their own teeth because they just can't. Or I think a prime example of this is like with eating disorders for women, like anorexia is so, so romanticized. And like, honestly, like almost idolized because not only do people assume that it comes with thinness, which aesthetically is idolized, but it is the romanticization of this like control, like in self-discipline, anorexia is supposed to be about self-discipline and like self-deprivation, which taps into some like, you know, age old Protestant values we have around self-discipline, but like other eating disorders, like binge eating and stuff like that, like no one romanticizes that because that doesn't. It's not tied into self-discipline. I think Eluz makes the point that that romanticization isn't just in like a literary way or an aesthetic way, but in talk therapy and the way we conceive of talk therapy, we also put individualism and self-reliance on a pedestal. Even as there is a sort of dual paradoxical issue of we, you know, make ourselves like not morally culpable for what happened to us, we still definitely make up for that by being like well now it's our job to make sure that we're psychologically indefensible like we are in charge of our future Eluz makes the point that it really kind of puts these traditionally male ideals of self-reliance on a pedestal by letting us sort out our private life and our public life that's something I feel like I've seen a lot of marginalized people talk about this specifically like black and indigenous people uh, talk about therapy And they've discussed like the frustration that they found with it because it's this individualistic narrative about how you can fix it. But often the issues that they face and a lot of the root causes of like their mental illness and their struggles are like systematic racism and, you know, poverty and things like that. And it's, I've heard like so many people discuss the frustration and anger that they feel at therapy because even like it's supposed to be something to help like heal you, but the tools it gives you are all on an individual scale. And sometimes like you have to face the reality that like, poverty is the issue or racism is the issue and like yeah. there's no tool a therapist can give you that can fix that that's a really good point I think also you know coming into talk therapy with that problem where your individual tools will help you know you regulate your emotions but it won't actually take away 
the sources of stress or the sources of trauma, people then face this additional parameter of like, how can I go on in life being strong when I feel really weak inside Um, or the opposite? Like I've come this far, I feel really strong, but to other people, am I looking weak because I'm seeking help and stuff like that? And I think the romanticization of frailty really adds to that because you don't know whether you want to portray yourself as strong or weak, especially if you're not used to reaching out for help. If you still want other people to validate and justify what you went through as horrible, you're not sure if you should look strong or look weak. Especially because frailty and weakness is, in some ways, it's a privilege that certain people mm-hmm. are like, you know, white women are expected to have and are allowed to indulge in and that's seen as a positive trait for them but not not others yeah I mean white women's frailty is like a whole issue unto itself but I think women across the board will sometimes face that like the option to look weak or the option to look frail or if you're if you are skinny like an option to cash in on being this like skinny little girl or you know to let people protect you or something like that and that can be like a a dilemma that a lot of girls will have to go through and they look back and they're like oh yeah I was like that um I'm not like other girls girl you know what Sontag said about contentment isn't interesting and sadness is I've been personally I've just been recently on an Audrey Hepburn obsession I've always been obsessed with her but like it's kicked into high gear recently And there's all this obsession over her because she's so like frail and so like, you know, and that's a big aspect of her style. Um, But like she was thin because she was super, super malnourished during World War II in Holland. While the Nazis were like occupying Holland, she like barely survived by eating tulip bulbs out of the ground. Like I saw a video recently on like, why are we obsessed with Audrey Hepburn? Is something coming out? Like, was is there a movie about her or something? Like, there was a documentary about her that was recently released. It'll come out to uh, Netflix in a couple. I know. love photos of her when she's, like, 80 or whatever. She's so beautiful. Like, yeah, everything but her eyes have aged. It's, like, incredible. She was really, really breathtaking. I personally have, like, my emotional connection to Audrey Hepburn. This is a side tangent. That was something that, like, I remember, like, when I was like deep in the anorexia pit, like I would look at all these photos of her and like obsess over her and be like, I want to have her body and I want to look like her. And then I remember like, as I learned more about her and her humanitarian work about like ending child hunger and stuff. Mm. And like, you know, the years she spent with UNICEF and like, you know, raising money and awareness about that and the starvation she endured. I was like, man, if I ever met her and told her that I was starving myself on purpose to look like her she would be like you have severely missed the point I'm sure she would have been like so ironic yeah yeah I mean it's the same irony with tuberculosis I don't understand why tuberculosis which is like it's literally called the disease of the beautiful or something like that because you became thinner and your cheeks became red your your skin became paler it's infectious bacterial disease that mainly affects the lungs Symptoms usually include cough, sometimes blood twinged, weight loss, night sweats, and fever. So consumption slash tuberculosis is this, like, I don't know why, but it started to signal not just beauty and youth and frailty, but also class. Like, you're, you're genteel, and you're like, there's so many poets that Sontag 
quotes poets would journal they'd be like I'm looking a little consumptive today or they'd be like I would be glad to die of consumption like (laughs) that's why she's like they're literally romanticizing death like dying you know like starving to death coughing yourself to death I mean have you seen those like ads from like the 30s and like the 40s and stuff when there was like rationing on and like the great depression and things like that and there were ads for like weight gain products for women and people like you know like all these ads were like, that's why you won't look so like pathetic and you won't look so skinny. Mm. And it's really hard, I think, for us to kind of wrap our heads around that different beauty standard because we're so entrenched in our own beauty standard. I mean, also you and I, the 2000s thinness as a beauty standard was insane. But in terms of it, like signifying class sort of thing that pops into my head first, although I don't have a fully formed coherent thought on it, is the idea of like hardy, like pioneer stock is a phrase mm-hmm. I heard. I've heard in a lot of like older books, older movies, people talk about like working class people and like their like health and their hardiness and they're sturdy. Whereas like wealthy people don't have to be hardy and sturdy because they're not working in fields, they're not doing manual labor. So they're allowed to be delicate and they're allowed to be like, you know, little like blown glass birds or something. Yeah, and I think a lot about how, I mean, this may be a generalization, but like a lot of, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this. Like a lot of my friends are thin. And a lot of my Asian friends are thin. I see my friends who are Asian women step into this role of like being really cute and good and innocent and all this stuff. And like you said, I don't have a coherent thought on this. But also because of my proximity to that, it's almost hard for me to like be like stop because it's a social rule that is so rewarded it's kind of like what we were talking about with celebrities like showing off their wealth or making stupid choices like if it's if they're being rewarded for holding this social role of like a good girl or a wifeable woman how I don't know how I can blame them you know yeah I mean I remember I think it was your fat friend on Instagram who recently released a book which I haven't read but I'm looking forward to but she she said like she posed a question where she's like people to like shame me for being fat they like you know discuss my weight and criticize me and like insult me and tell me what to eat etc and she's like they all say that you know they they're just concerned about my health you know when strangers come up to the street and tell me that I'm gonna die you know it's you know they're just concerned about my health and I mean she also makes the obvious point that you know nothing about anyone's health by looking at their body you know you don't know that but another point she makes is like at the end of the day like when push comes to shove if you ask a lot of people like would you rather be thin but be severely unhealthy, like borderline dying with chronic illness, or would you rather be fat but healthy and like being perfect health for the rest of your life? Like, which would you choose? And most people would choose thin. And I think that sort of really speaks to the crux of the matter, which is that fat phobia is way, way more ingrained. Or like, it's more, it's a bigger issue than I think people realize. It's not just like, oh, sometimes people like think that like, sometimes people feel bad about themselves, but it's such like, yeah, it's really tied into all these other systematic forms of oppression on a broader scale. And it goes back to like what you said earlier, like, even though it's like bad, like people are rewarded for their behavior, like celebrities or like, you know, and like we're rewarded for being thin. So like, of course I want to hold on to that reward. Like I know that mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. myself, even though like I've read all these things and I'm like, you know, working yeah. to dismantle that internal bias, but like I'm still constantly being rewarded for the way I look. And of course I don't right. want to let go of that reward. Yeah. I don't know if like the way that I'm going to phrase this is like not really my place to say, 
like as a thin person, it really clicked for me how much people hate fat people. And I'm saying it that way because I don't think people realize how little they're calling themselves out for it and how little control they're asserting over their reaction and the way they treat other people. Just like the cruelty of our like socialized instincts is breathtaking. <laughs> yeah. So I have a couple images of tuberculosis. Very. This is just different topic now. I have a couple images of tuberculosis really burned into my brain because there's this TV show called Penny Dreadful starring the person who played Rose in Doctor Who and Reeve Carton, Orpheus in Hades Town on Broadway. He was also in Taylor Swift's I Knew You Were Trouble music video. This, okay, this show is very good because it's like 1800s horror. And like this Victorian horror was a big thing, obviously, in the Victorian era where people would go to see like dead bodies or like go to see recreated crime scenes. You know, Jack the Ripper was at large at this time. And there was huge class inequality, which like meant that the regular like hygiene and living conditions of most people were really, truly disgusting. <laughs> this era combined this, uh, like a real life Dorian Gray. The picture of Dorian Gray is a book by Oscar Wilde in which the main character is in love with this like very effeminate, very young, very thin, very frail boy. And there's some plot line about how one of them stays young forever because a portrait grows old for them instead. And so this combines Dorian Gray. There's also a Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. And its stories are taken from like Caliban, from Shakespeare's The Tempest and stuff. It's like all of this mixed into one. It's like really good. And there's also like a huge, oh, Eva Green is in it. There's a scene in which she has sex with the devil. It's wow. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> but anyways, okay, I'm going to spoil it. The main, <laughs> the main thing is, Dorian Gray can't die, right? Frankenstein makes a bride and she is someone who has consumption before she becomes undead. When, like, when she's dying of consumption, she is a sex worker. And so the, and so Dorian Gray, he is so bored of life. He takes all this pleasure in like gore and horror and like flirting with death. And so what he does is he commissions her to have portraits taking of her, a photograph, the first photograph, you know, in that time. There's so much going on in the show. Okay. And she starts coughing up blood in the middle of the photo shoot. And he goes to her and she's like, what does it feel like to be dying? What does it feel like to be a dying creature? And then he like licks up her blood and then they have sex in front of the camera and he like has sex with death. And then she turns into the bride of Frankenstein. So it's like, you know, but this idea of death and beauty, like, really, it's so fucked up. Do you have an instinctual response to that? Like, does it make sense to you, despite its fucked upness, or no? I think this romanticization of death, like, it also kind of depends on where it's coming from. Because I think for, like, some people, like, people who have gone through suffering and who are trying to cope with it like the romanticization of it is a way of them trying to like rationalize it or justify it to themselves and tell them that like to tell themselves that it happened for a reason or that like you know there is beauty in it somehow whereas like when it's coming from an outside source like this is tangentially related at best but I saw a TikTok where someone was talking about how there's like this phoenix from the ashes narrative around women who are survivors of like sexual abuse and rape and like domestic violence in a lot of media 
and like these male media makers like filmmakers tv makers producers directors will like you know have these women be like beaten and abused and raped and then they like come back and like stronger and they exact revenge and it like makes them a better person somehow tarantino kill bill is the obvious example of this the the tiktoker said that like it's a way men can like assuage their guilt for what they've done to women by telling themselves that the suffering has made women stronger, like made women beautiful or like, you know, made women better. Mm -hmm. That way they don't have to feel as bad for what they've done. Now I'm thinking of like Hallmark movies and like Make-A-Wish Foundation videos and stuff. Like death and sexual assault are so senseless. They don't make sense in someone's life. And so we like to put these narratives at the end of it. Like, in a Hallmark movie, we put a narrative to their death or something like that so that we feel like, oh, they left having done something or having lived a satisfactory life, but that's just not true. This person didn't know they were going to die and now they're dead, you know? Another example I can think of for that Phoenix from the Ashes narrative is in Game of Thrones. I got to the freaking fourth episode of the entire show and I was like, there's sexual assault in every single one and it's all graphically depicted why am I watching this? Like, yeah. I get it's supposed to be a great show or whatever, but like, why? <laughs> what is the reason? Yeah, and that's like, people talk about like, how you can tell when a man was like, directing or creating scenes around sexual assault. Also, like, as a, a disclaimer, like, plenty of men unfortunately experience sexual assault and rape, and it's totally valid for them to discuss their experiences. But when men discuss like, rape happening to women, and it's like that straight white cis men, gaze like it involves this like explicit portrayal and like really showing the gory details of it in a way that like women who've experienced that don't don't remember it or like don't describe it as yeah they describe they show it like an action scene like that's our equivalent of an action like a fight sequence and it's not and that's that's a great analogy because like they shoot it or they portray it as like an action scene which would imply that both characters have agency somehow in it. They look at it as the biggest thing that a woman character can go through, which really means that they think a fight scene is the biggest scene that a man's character can go through. Mm -hmm. But like, why not just have women do fight scenes? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> a show that was really popular recently, The Queen's Gambit. Um, I watched like this analysis video on it and this ties in because there's actually a scene in which she's like at her lowest point. Like she's an addict to different substances and there's this point where she completely gives up on herself. The video was like, why, <laughs> why in her lowest point is she in her underwear and makeup and like her hair is nice and stuff. And then there were women commenting on the video being like, well, people look different. Like sometimes you break down and you look amazing to everyone else and you look pristine. And I thought that was like a fair point, but both things can be true. Like yeah. <laughs> a man wrote the book that it's based on and a man directed it. So there's this romanticization of a breakdown. Like you're wild and free and young and beautiful and then it all crashes down or whatever, you know. But another, uh, uh, in contrast, a great point about the show is that this woman is never sexually assaulted. Like she just she just goes through the whole show and doesn't get raped. Pretty amazing. Um, That's a win. Yeah. And Sad, also, but a win. Yeah, and um, there's this extremely unrealistic but very emotionally fulfilling ending where all of her past lovers who she's rejected 
like literally she's rejected all of them and like talked down to all of them she's smarter than all of them because she beats them all at chess and stuff they all for whatever reason band together in the same new york apartment and call her in russia where she's like in her final tournament or whatever and tell her like if he makes this move make this move if he makes this move make this move so it's like all her past lovers who she rejected who she beat in chess game all banding together and supporting her and like honoring her as you know and and also whoever she wins like against in Russia they're all like you are the greatest chess player I have ever played and stuff like that and it's like that just would never happen if you're a woman in the 1960s like who is the best chess player in the world or whatever it's like that like male fantasy like there are shows where that pretend that like there's no such thing as LGBTQ discrimination it's like a huge break from like reality to be able to go into that world I feel like why like the male fantasy about like women having like a breakdown but still being pretty is like this fantasy of them having someone to like save or to fix someone who's easy for them to control honestly because she's weak but still feminine you know queen's gambit was actually criticized for i guess not doing that like i guess like unrealistically banding all these men in true support of her and then she like accomplishes something great and like that's a nice escape yeah (laughs) It's like Bridgerton or whatever, which I haven't seen. But I read that, like, I mean, obviously it's, like, colorblind casting or whatever. But there's, like, apparently seen it where someone, like, they, like, discuss, like, why, like, people of color are there. And, like, oh, the queen gave people of color their rights or something. And it's, like, that kind of ruined it. Like, Mm. you know, you watch the media and be, like, we just were pretending it doesn't exist. And I accept that it's unrealistic, but we just go with it. It's essentially just belief. Just try and give me a reason for it. It's not. Uh Uh-huh. I love colorblind casting and I love when like in sitcoms like people will have gay parents for no reason I don't think that writers do that to appease their audiences for uh, like wanting gay characters because it's so clearly far from that like writing a gay narrative writing a gay story but it's just kind of like a little like easter egg that I personally enjoy I love colorblind casting one of the first I think instances of that was not definitely not the first instance but one major instance of that was louis ck unfortunately his show is so good unfortunately the wife of his two ginger children is black for no reason at all and people were like and then they like kind of addressed it in the show and people were like oh you shouldn't have addressed it you should have just like left yeah. it, like you said about bridgerton yeah we've gone far off course in media <laughs> analysis which is like what we usually do well, that's what Sontag did in her in her little chapter as well. So. Yeah. I mean, media is like, it's kind of everything. At the end of the day, it's representative of who we are and what our values are and like what we watch and don't watch are really indicative of our value systems and our, honestly, our goals and our sense of identity. So yeah, we translate all of like what happens in real life, according to maybe not media we're currently watching, but media we watched when we were younger. Like, other than our immediate family members, media is what let us know what a person is, what a man is, what a woman is. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, there are a few topics we didn't cover. Do you think repressed memories are a real thing? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I've, like, unlocked memories for, like, that I thought, I, like, that I'd forgotten. Whereas, like, every now and then I'll just be, like, hit with a memory. I'm like, whoa. Like, <laughs> totally forgot that happened. Is there anything like that recently? I mean, yeah, nothing I want to talk about, though. Oh, okay. 
I believe in like dissociative identity disorder, but when like repressed memories became an actual thing in history, a lot of it was a lot of it was uncovered to be therapists forcing their clients to make up memories. And it was indicative of this like satanic panic. It was basically QAnon. Like it was literally the same thing that there's like a devil cult of progressivism that is like infecting these kids. They were like accusing and holding all of these teachers accountable for child abuse that had really just been done to the kids by their families. We talked about which episodes did we talk about this in? Forcing us into nuclear families without bigger community context gives the head of the household, the man, much more power while holding the rest of the family members in much more isolation. And so there's been this kind of like academic scholarship done on how rep- repressed memories were a tool to have a conspiracy theory about these like child molestation rings and stuff. And that's why a lot of the laws around like what body parts of a child a teacher can touch, like that's where they came from. Cool. That's fact. something I knew nothing about. Super cool fact about the way we live, the history of our country. (laughs) All facts about the history of our country are cool and fun. I think sometimes about how therapists aren't, like, how can they be so exempt from everything like that we filter, you know? Yeah. Like, if I have such messed up thoughts, why wouldn't my therapist have messed up thoughts as well? And that's like, like what I said earlier, where like a lot of people of color discuss like, you know, their frustration where they go to therapy and their therapist is like, here's a coping skill. And they're like, yeah, but like the issue is institutional racism. Like it's, you know, is that like talk therapy has the potential for a lot of good, but we have like maybe a little bit too much faith in it. Like we, people kind of like go into the room and expect to find someone who will like fix their issues. And it's like, that's true. That's true. I also think like alludes puts it well, The therapeutic narrative consists precisely in adorning with maximum meaning any and all forms of suffering, both real and invented. It's this idea that we are made by traumas. What if that's not true? I also know a lot of people, they're fully able to talk about themselves, their traumas. And of course, it's not, you know, with a level of comfort that you would want. But sometimes what they really are looking for is how to live their life around it, you know? I feel like that's honestly, like speaking personally like with my eating disorder it's not like something where it's like okay it's gone now like we're good it's kind of something where you have to accept the flaws of life and the fact that like there will always be these struggles and these traumas I mean hopefully not traumas but like you know these difficulties and you just need to find a way to to take it like day by day and live live around it yeah and I think you know talk therapy could be a good thing more on the long term like maybe once a month you go or something like that or and it's also like kind of a I'm going through a crisis I really need to be doing talk therapy like twice a week or something like that you know another instance in which like talk therapy might not really help is if you have specific trauma from a family member or somebody that you want to keep in your life but you don't know how you can't even start to get over your trauma because it's the source that is still present in your life how are you supposed to healthfully go through the process of being upset with them and then making up with them if they're not willing to do that? And that ties back to the idea of like talk therapy gives a sense of agency, which is good because it is positive to understand that there are like certain to a degree, there are things you can do to improve your situation. But also like 
you don't have total agency of your life. And like you said, like you can't control other people's actions. You have to be able to accept that. Like you can't fix all of your like traumas and like reconcile with you know, people who you've split with on your own because it's you can't control these other people and you can't control what's happened in the past. It's like a great first step, but nothing. I mean, like a good therapist will tell you there's no such thing as a miracle. Like it's all about the work. This has been Rose is All Trash, the accompanying podcast to read community. Uh, this was for the first week of our March calendar. Please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Instagram, and follow our personal Instagrams at rrryyen and at Catherine.shark. We'll see you next week. Bye.